Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. Something a little bit different today. We're going to dive into the intricacies of the Ukraine conflict, and we're going to do that with someone who is very well-versed in this conflict and has been following it very closely and was following it for months and months, I think, before the rest of the world was. Now, obviously, Ukraine is uh, front page news in every newspaper. It is 24-7 on every major broadcast network. But it wasn't always this way. Uh, this has really only been the past three, maybe three and a half weeks as we're recording this. But prior to that, uh, there were many people in the national security community who were anticipating this was going to be a problem. And uh, my guest today, Boris Rivkin, is one of them. Boris, I'm really excited to dive into all of this with you. Welcome to Creedle. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I first found you on Twitter. You know, where else uh, do we find our, our experts these days? But uh, someone had said, if you're not following uh, Boris Rivkin on this, and I think the other one was Gray Connolly, you need to be following both of them. And that was probably three weeks ago. Again, uh, you two and several others had been following this for a long time and are very well versed in these matters. And so I thought I better follow these gentlemen and figure out figure out what I have to learn and how to get start get, get smart on this conflict. So I've really appreciated your insights uh, for the past few weeks as I have been following you. And I was thrilled when I reached out and said, hey, Boris, I do this podcast, would love to have you on. And, and you said, let's do it. So thank you so much. Um, Boris, I'm going to read your bio for my listeners here just so they understand where where you are coming from. And then I'll ask you uh, a, bit, a bit more personally, sort of how is this an interest of yours and how do you know so much about the conflict? What's your personal background, if any, uh, with respect to uh, to Ukraine and Russia? So uh, Boris Rivkin is the sole member of Montefly Holdings LLC, a portfolio holding company. Previously, Boris practiced law as a transactional attorney specializing in mergers, acquisitions, and general corporate matters at, respectively, global law firms Clifford Chance US LLP, Skadden Arps Slate Maker and Flom LLP, and Mayor Brown LLP. Boris also formerly served as National Security Advisor to U.S. Senator Ted Cruz. His policy writing has appeared in, among other publications, The National Review, The National Interest, Business Insider, and The Diplomat. So, Boris, that's the uh, that's the official bio. Uh, but tell me tell me more. How do you know so much about Ukraine and and Russia? Well, I was originally born in Moscow back in the late eighties, eighty seven. So right before the Soviet Union collapsed, and uh, both. Uh, close and extended family uh, is located on both sides of the divide, although there's no one uh, in either of those countries now at this point. They've long since uh, emigrated. But um, uh, one of my late grandfathers was born in Kiev right before the Second World War and was evacuated just in time, thankfully. Uh, as a Jewish family, obviously, it would have been uh, particularly dangerous had they remained behind at that point uh, before the Germans uh, seized Ukraine and Kiev, and especially in September of 1941. So uh, he was born a couple of years before that and, and was able to move. And my other uh, late grandfather was born in Kharkiv, which um, uh, in Russian is called Kharkiv. Uh, and there's a lot of, we can touch on that a bit, the transliteration battle that's happening between the Ukrainian and Russian versions of these, um, of these uh, cities. And um, so uh, he... Uh, also, uh, he was born in 1924 and volunteered, served in the Red Army, actually participated in operations to liberate from the Germans Crimea and East Ukraine. So a very strong Ukrainian connection there. Uh, we all, you know, the family all ended up in Moscow at one or at, at different times. And so as a result, so as a result, um, we all kind of have that both Ukrainian and Russian cross-pollination. And so it's something very near and dear to our hearts, uh, and 
uh, kind of watching this unfold, as I kind of also commented on social media once, if this had been a conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea, for example, over the border, civil war or something to that effect, uh, obviously that would have been interesting and important and something worth commenting on. But this, when it's something that, you know, where you know these cities uh, and you have that family connection, you have that language background, you have that cultural baggage, and, and you, it, it just simply is so difficult emotionally, personally, to wrap your mind around what's happening, that you have a Russian aggression, uh, literally a patriotic war on the part of Ukraine, an aggressive war on the part of Russia, you know, destroying, leveling Kharkiv and cities like this, Chernihiv and all of these other places that you know of so well that you've read about, that you have, you know, so many people from uh, with that connection. Uh, it, it's sometimes very difficult to separate the kind of um, uh, more despondent, policy analysis from the emotion. Uh, and uh, that, I think, inevitably made me more interested and concerned about it. And also, I felt I could add a lot more value to the discussion just because of the language and being able to uh, draw upon Russian commentators, Ukrainian commentators, all these different sources, and present those to especially an American audience that ordinarily isn't really in tune with what's happening in that part of the world, doesn't often understand nuances, and would like to be more informed. And, you know, that's where I could find a, a better niche to, to kind of bring that uh, discussion, which is often not being had, certainly, much of our mainstream media uh, to American audiences and also European audiences, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, and by the way, my, the, the system we're using here cut out. I don't know if, if you lost me from the, the chat, Boris, but... A, a little bit, Okay, yeah. so uh, hopefully we'll be able to fix it in post-production. But um, if it happens again, we'll figure out an alternative to uh, not... <laughs> to, to work around that. Sure. But um, yeah, so... Uh, I'm glad for people like you who can actually draw on real relevant experience. You know, there's a, there was a joke going around on social media where someone said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to announce my retirement from two years of being an epidemiology expert and infectious disease expert. And I'm happy to <laughs> announce my next opportunity as an expert in all things Ukraine and, and no fly zones. Exactly. Um, so there's a lot of just false expertise going around and I appreciate that you can draw on real expertise and uh, as uh, as some some like to say, you know, one of the recent buzzwords, lived experience, right? Um, right. There is a bit of a theological aspect to that as well, yeah. you know, in terms of how, uh, if you want to talk about it, even at a spiritual level, uh, to you know how people just uh, nonchalantly shift between all these different crises, and uh, from a very safe distance. You know, it's mm -hmm. almost like you know that's a philosophical and maybe a theological question. In other words, to what extent is this almost perversely a form of yet more infotainment or entertainment yes. from thousands of miles away versus people who can uh, I truly identify to an extent with what's actually happening uh, to the point of lived experience. Yeah. I mean, here you have an actual, and, and it's, it's really incredible the extent to which people immediately return to seriousness when there's an actual crisis. In other words, it's really difficult to spin this in a lived experience infotainment yes. way. Yes. Uh, and uh, I think as horrible as it is, for our sake, that's actually a, a very welcome, uh, not, I wouldn't say distraction, but a very welcome return to what we should have been, the kinds of topics we should be talking about uh, with a, a, a lot more detail than a lot of what we tend to waste our time on. So. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, so tell me, when you were when you were watching all of this unfold prior to the actual invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces in late February, uh, there were Russian forces that were amassing on the border of Ukraine uh, more than 
uh, more than any, more than, than would realistically be expected for any exercise. This looked like it was, this was more than a, than a mere exercise. This looked like it was more than mere posturing. But I mean, I was wrong, not that I'm an expert by any means, but I, you know, some, some friends asked me, what do you think Putin's going to do? And I didn't think anyone, anything would happen. So, uh, it, it obviously took many people off guard. Uh, I count myself among them, but you know, I'm not an expert. It also took, took many people off guard who, who do count themselves experts in this arena. So, um, what did we miss in thinking that this might've been just a, a bluff by Putin when it ended up not being the case that he, he wants to take Ukraine, uh, wholesale. Uh, well, I was part of that group that believed that he was ultimately going to bluff. Uh, and this was, uh, more of his standard racketeering right. practice that he had perfected over many years, that this was saber rattling, that he was looking to extract some, uh, short-term concessions from NATO or from the U.S. in particular, less maybe from the Ukrainians, because... But I uh, had a different reason for not believing mm. it than many of the people who didn't believe it. In other words, a lot of what they were saying was that, uh, who didn't buy, buy it, was that they uh, expected that the West had, the Western powers had signaled sufficiently the consequences of Putin doing this, uh, that uh, it, it wasn't practical in terms of, or, or he wouldn't go that far because this wasn't really part of his playbook over years. And my view was different. I thought that he was more rational than he ended up being. I underestimated how he had bought into his own ideology and the very airtight information bubble that he inhabits. I like to remind people that he doesn't use the internet. You can almost never find him holding a smartphone or any kind of electronic device. Uh, he still gets his information almost exclusively or, or exclusively in hard copy with briefing papers that are given to him by a very small group wow. of advisors in the Security Council. So he is a very, very isolated person. So when you're thinking about how can he not uh, factor in these variables, how could he not understand what's happening around him and, and, and kind of um, take all of this into account before making decisions, you have to place yourself in the context in which the world in which he inhabits. Uh, and I think many Western analysts failed to do that or not to the extent that they should have. Uh, and uh, to some, I, I was convinced that he would understand that he would not be getting millions of Russian speaking Ukrainians flocking to his banner when he crossed the border. Right. I convinced that there would be ferocious resistance on every front, that he wouldn't be able to take uh, Kiev and Kharkiv and maybe a couple of other cities in a matter of days. I didn't think that was practical. The way that it was being presented as how they were planning this invasion, I thought would never get off the ground. Mm -hmm. So I really just did not think he would be open to sustaining those kinds of human casualties and equipment losses and to sustain that kind of an operation. But apparently, I really misjudged the extent to which he bought into a narrative that he himself had nurtured over a period of at least two decades and some of the more hawkish members of his security council those around him who have any influence over his thinking had been feeding to him during that period uh, that he really did believe uh, in his heart of hearts that all of those rather strange lengthy historical addresses that he gave of 50 minutes long mm -hmm. you know narration of ukrainian history bolshevik history peter the great catherine the great all of that hodgepodge yep. of narrative and a lot of people sort of dismiss that as saying like is this like what is he getting at here but it turns out he really believed what he was saying in other words that ukraine isn't a real country that the government in kiev despite the fact that Zelensky had won 
73% of the vote in the second round in the presidential election in 2019 was accepted as legitimate by everyone in Ukraine, including the nationalist members of the opposition. And he actually received majorities, landslides, in those parts of the country that Putin claimed he wanted to liberate from, from the government. Mm-hmm. So uh, you put all of this together, uh, you know, he really did think that this wasn't really a supportive government, that this was a group of lightweights, entertainers, uh, cronies. You know, they w- he looked at what happened in Afghanistan with how quickly that the Afghan government fled when the Taliban rolled in and took over. He felt that Zelensky and his cabinet would do exactly the same very quickly. The minute that the Russian forces crossed the border and the first helicopters flew flew in and the first airborne troops landed, Zelensky would be on the first flight out to Warsaw, basically. That was how he thought this would play out. Uh, and uh, especially in places like Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Ukraine, uh, overwhelmingly Russian-speaking, probably the most pro-Russian large city in the country, he fully expected there would be little to no resistance and the people would just be running out to throw flowers at the Russian tanks. Just parading down the streets and, as soon as they arrived. Exactly, yeah, yeah he, he really thought it would be that easy. Wow. Uh, and it would be a repeat of what happened in Georgia to some extent mm-hmm. in 2008, when within five days, Russian forces were in the capital, around on the outskirts of the capital, Tbilisi, and the Russians forced a political settlement on the then Georgian government of Saakashvili, and essentially forced them to accept that Abkhazia and South Ossetia, those two regions of Georgia, would effectively be under Russian control, right. like Crimea and, and right. those Donbass areas of Ukraine. So he thought this would be an exact repeat. And I was convinced that was insane. Uh, but apparently he really bought into that and decided to roll the dice and make his move and cross that line. Uh, but I almost to the last minute didn't think that he would go through with it. Although, interestingly enough, it now turns out from some documents that had been leaked and uh, Russian sources, and, and it's also been entering the U.S. discussion, that the directive to invade was signed near the end of January. I, I did see that, yeah. Uh, in other words, it didn't specify exactly when he was going to do it. He could have still changed his mind. But that strongly suggested that much of what we saw in February was choreographed, was for show the decision had already largely been made. And all of those last-minute diplomatic efforts with the European leaders flying to Moscow and trying to talk him out of it, and our efforts, Blinken with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, that all of that was really just theater, and it was all about making the final decision. And when he gathered that really eerie meeting of his security council, Mm -hmm. where they were all shaking and trembling like school kids in front of the headmaster, basically, Mm -hmm. as he was, you know, humiliating them publicly. It was clear that that was his attempt. All of that was pre-recorded to uh, bring everyone into collective responsibility for the decision and that the invasion was going to happen. But even at that point, I thought, okay, you know, maybe he'd go for a limited incursion somewhere around those areas of the separatist enclaves that they had claimed, but I didn't think that he would go so far as this really regime change war of aggression from three directions. And so I acknowledge when I'm wrong, but, you know, lessons learned. And that actually makes predicting what's going to happen now that much harder. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to. Let's come back to the prediction of what will happen next. But let's stay on this this idea of sort of Putin and his rationality. What do you think it is that Putin 
once at the end. I've, I've, I think the two prevailing analyses that I've that I see most often is one, he wants to restore the Soviet Union. This is the former KGB officer, et cetera, et cetera. The second, I think, more compelling one is he's he's more motivated by the sort of the great Russia. He's more motivated by the stories of the of the czars. And like you mentioned, Catherine, Catherine the Great, for example, in his lectures on that. So so what is it that he wants? What is the ideal end state for Putin? It's obviously not going well for him in Ukraine, but what does he want at the end of the day? I think it's a combination of those things. He famously called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He uh, was once asked, you know, what would you have done in 1991 in place of Gorbachev, who, of course, thankfully for all involved, bowed to the inevitable and let the Soviet Union effectively break apart. This is essentially him trying to undo what Gorbachev did fundamentally. I think that, and he, when asked that question, said, well, you know, I was working with a very prominent liberal uh, Mayor Anatoly Sobchak, he was his right-hand man in what became St. Petersburg, and even, and he pointed this out, Putin, even the liberal mayor of St. Petersburg said, what are you people doing? Why are you destroying the country? Right? So I think you also, you have to kind of understand who Putin is, where he came from, and how he actually ended up being president of Russia, because looking at that biography very quickly explains a lot of the mindset that the kind of imperial revanchist mindset that mm -hmm. we're dealing with and his own deep insecurities. I think a lot of this, that's what I'm emphasizing, the ideological aspect of it, because I think another more popular, maybe less compelling in my view, argument for this is the classic realpolitik, balance of power, realist explanation for all of this. It's about NATO expansion. It's about Russia needing Ukraine in its sphere of influence. If Putin was not in the Kremlin, it didn't matter who would be there, any Russian president or ruler would do exactly the same thing. You know, you hear a lot of these contrarian arguments. Right, this is, right. you know, Mearshocker yep. very famously uh, has been advocating this. And I think, and I've been stressing the entire time that, and I agree with your uh, kind of description of the two prevailing narratives, it really discounts the ideological factor for Putin here. Uh, I don't believe that if it was anyone else in the Kremlin, we would be looking at the kind of war that we were that we're looking at right now. I don't agree with that argument. I don't think that this was an inevitable conflict. And we'll you know touch on the NATO point, which I think is much more of a red herring than anything else. Okay. And, but it keeps cropping up. Uh, but I think uh, this is an or what I would call a Homo Sovieticus in in in, in Russian uh, kind of parlance uh, from the early 20th century, a Soviet man, uh, a very very Soviet system person, a person who owed his career, owed his purpose in life to the Soviet system in large part, because this is someone who came from nowhere in Leningrad from a relatively poor, obscure background. Uh, he didn't grow up in a family of intellectuals, people who, you know, were reading uh, Russian poetry and literature. He was a guy from the back alleys of Leningrad who, uh, prior to being recruited into the KGB, basically didn't know what he was going to do with his life, didn't really have much of a purpose. I didn't realize that, and, yeah. And uh, when he, and, and a lot of his worldview, how to think about the world, how to interact with people, how to assess the intentions of world leaders and the intentions of states, was shaped by what he was taught in the high school of the KGB. And it's difficult for us who aren't from that world to kind of understand how these people interpret things, interpret risks, and, and see the world around them writ large. And for him, his purpose, his rise, what gave him a chance in life was the, the security services of the Soviet Union. 
and the collapse of the system that he had come to believe was inevitable in one form or another, even though he understood that there were problems with it and, you know, it needed to be fundamentally overhauled, but he uh, fundamentally could not let go of this ideological view that what happened in 1991 with all of these countries breaking away and the Soviet Union disappearing was an aberration, that it could have been avoided, it could have been prevented. And so on top of that, he himself became president almost by accident. He came out of nowhere. He was a you know, mid-ranking official in St. Petersburg. Within a few years, he was in Moscow. He was head of the FSB, which was the successor to the KGB in Russia. Then he became prime minister, and then he became president of Russia. So here's someone who didn't have decades of political, prominent national political experience, wasn't really known, wasn't a successful business person, uh, you know, beyond, you know, some of the cronyism that he was involved in in the past. And I think there is a uh, complex of grandeur that uh, is animating him. He's been, uh, and also the uh, degradation that comes from uh, being in, uh, in power for far too long, you know, and, uh, uh, in, in, uh, to go back to Acton's uh, axiom or maxim, uh, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think after 22 years of uh, building an authoritarian state and degrading to that extent politically. There's been institutional degradation to such an extent in the country that and a centralization of decision-making in his own person that it does warp your sense of what is possible and what isn't, what is practical and, and what is incredibly dangerous. And you start to uh, lose sight of the bigger picture, in my opinion. And that's why you see him constantly giving these history lessons, constantly. It's not even the Soviet or the greater Russia, it's all of that together. And he wants to go down in history. I think there is that complex. And now that he's 70, maybe, you know, the paranoia over uh, his age or coronavirus and yeah. the isolation that he's been experiencing also played a part that he decided to uh, try to see what he can do that he wasn't able to do before, but wanted to do uh, for many years. And, uh, and and Ukraine in particular is a very sore point for him. Uh, and that goes back almost from his first years of being in power in Russia. Uh, there are many people who think that this is because of 2014, or this is something that just came up a few years ago, or again, back to this is because the Ukrainians decided to submit a NATO membership plan and there were some signals that that might change and the mm -hmm. Russians felt threatened. That's really not the case. Uh, there were already border disputes that could have spilled over into something a lot worse from the early 2000s uh, with uh, when there was no chance that Ukraine was going to be joining NATO. In fact, most Ukrainians were at best lukewarm to that idea at the time. Uh, there was a much clearer split between the kind of pro-European Ukrainian part of the country and the more pro-Russian, Russian-speaking part of the country. And even then, Putin was already pushing the envelope uh, it, with the then president Kuchma uh, at the time. Uh, there was a, a special crisis in 2003 that many people forget about. Uh, and, and that really continued over the space of a number of years. But given the nature of the regime that Putin had built in Russia, he could afford to wait. He didn't have to start making these bold moves right away. Yeah. So he was able to approach the problem in phases. So uh, 2014 was the next phase where he was able to take advantage of the chaos and the vacuum to annex Crimea, Crimea and to yeah. foment those uh, takeovers in East Ukraine. And now it's the final phase. And that's why the aim is ultimately what he said it was. 
in his addresses and in the statement that was effectively the declaration of war, the start of the operation, as he called it, uh, which was to demilitarize, which essentially meant that the Ukrainian armed forces would be disbanded, cease to exist, uh, or would be neutered for all intents and purposes. And as far as, and the denazification, as he termed it, which meant the ouster of the Ukrainian government and its replacement with a Moscow puppet or some kind of a uh, Vichy-type regime that would be sympathetic to Moscow's instructions, very similar to what was the case with Yanukovych, who was the president right. in 2014, who was ousted. Uh, and then, so there would be, you know, part, part of the country would just be annexed to Russia proper, and the rest would be, most of the rest would be under this kind of Vichy pro-Russian Moscow regime. And uh, in fact, there was a article published by Russia's official, one of its official news services, RIA News, uh, that was quickly deleted uh, on the day after, I believe, the start of the invasion, which spelled all of this out. I, I mean, it actually that, used yeah. language to the effect of we're solving the Ukrainian problem, mm -hmm. you know, echoes of World War II and Nazi yep. Germany. Uh, and, and it just literally went through this, that this is what would be partitioned, this is what would be annexed, this is what we're going to... So, and this is from, you know, an official Russian news service. So you can argue that, you know, that's just the usual kind of uh, crazy, really kind of extremist propaganda, that, that that really isn't what they were intending to do. Well, I didn't think that they were going to launch the invasion that they did. Yeah. So honestly, uh, you know, we, we have to give a lot more credence to the thinking of these people, because it's clear that they're operating in a reality that uh, is far removed from the one we're in. Uh, wait, quick, quick question here. When, when Putin talks about denazification, who is who is he trying to sort of galvanize with that phrase? Is that is that you know external messaging intended for the West? Is that for his own people? Is there, I mean, who is he talking to when he talks about that? Uh, that is a uh, a myth to some extent. That that's a, a kind of a story that uh, emerged from 2014 to the to the effect that to undermine the legitimacy of Ukraine's government, the view that, uh, you know, there is a junta, as he called it, uh, mm -hmm. a coup uh, that, that occurred in, uh, as part of that Maidan, um, Euromaidan yep. protests and rising that ousted Yanukovych, that was an anti-constitutional coup. And you have ultra-nationalists and Nazis who hate Russians and want to kill them and persecute them that came to power as part of that uh, revolution, if you will. And uh, he keeps repeating that mantra. Uh, two days into the invasion, he openly appealed to the Ukrainian military to stage a coup and said, you know, it's going to be easier for us to negotiate with you and reach a deal than with the quote, you know, uh, than with the quote, uh, gang of bandits and drug neo-Nazis and drug addicts in Kiev who are holding the country hostage. So I think he's really, and some of the more influential hardliners in his government have really bought into this view that uh, there is no legitimate government in Ukraine that has popular, broad popular support, that really behind this government it's being propped up by these ultra-nationalist forces and by, and, the, and are also, of course, it's also of course a tool of the U.S. and its Western allies. Uh, because the idea of mass popular democratic legitimacy for any government, certainly one in Ukraine, which he believes uh, unless it is a government that conforms to his own worldview right. of what a U Ukrainian government should be, can't be legitimate. So I think that's not something that he can accept. So he continues to invent this excuse. And that was what animated uh, the way that he planned this whole operation and invasion. 
thinking it would be over in two to four days. That's how deluded he was, I think. Yeah. And um, th that that's sort of his blanket explanation for the Ukrainian government as a whole. Obviously, uh, what you often get as a counter to that would be, okay, but what about this Azov battalion that we keep hearing about, mm -hmm. of, you know, a thousand all-man, all-volunteer battalion that's very ultra-nationalist and has neo-Nazi views? Well, what about these ultra-nationalist parties in Ukraine, factions, uh, that were very active in 2014, that had armed members in Kiev right at the forefront of those protests? I mean, how is that not proof of what Putin is saying uh, and confirming that. I mean, t what I would almost say to that is, well, there are also, there are more neo-Nazi ultra-nationalist members of the Russian Duma currently in the Duma than in the entire Ukrainian parliament. So are we going to be bombing Moscow wow. now because of that or St. Petersburg? I mean, yeah. there are more neo-Nazi gangs in St. Petersburg than there are in Kiev. Are we going to be bombing St. Petersburg, invading Russia as a result of that? And uh, as I'd like to point out, the grand total number of members of parliament that these ultra-nationalist parties in Ukraine have right now is one. Wow. Uh, and they were losing seats months after the 2014 revolution when you would think that they would be in the ascendant. Yeah. Uh, so these are very marginal fringe groups. So it's, a, you know, and I'd like to, again, uh, sometimes I've pointed out, why is it that the game of searching for fringe marginal extremist movements and to make them out to have broad mass popular support when they don't is always played on the anti-russian the 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 anti-kremlin side of the conflict rather than it also being played the same set of standards and same approach being applied uh to the russian side of the conflict yeah uh and uh and it's the selectivity to me it's almost a form of i need to find a way to buttress my own narrative and reason for not caring about this. In other words, I've already made up my mind as to which side I'm sympathetic with, or I really don't want to be sympathetic with either side. I just want this problem to go away. I don't want to think about it. So let me find a reason for not caring about it. So you start to look for reasons to poke holes. You know, it's kind yeah, of like, for uh, sure. uh, as you said, um, in intelligence, uh, you know, it's finding the intelligence to fit the narrative that you've already yeah, chosen totally. to yeah. accept. That's pretty yeah. much what a lot of this is in my opinion. So your, your point, though, about um, Putin, you mentioned that you also did not think he was going to invade, but you were wrong for reasons different than most. You didn't think uh, you thought he was too rational to believe to, to to get high on his own supply. Not not your words, but but mine. Right. That he actually turns out has imbibed all this uh, all this information that is just false about how easy it would be for Russia to do this, about how Russian the Russian army would be welcomed in the streets of Kharkiv, et cetera. Um, that I think is a theme of this conflict. I mean, uh, there are people all across uh, America who are trying to get to the bottom of what is actually going on. And it's very difficult to do that. Uh, the, the most nefarious propaganda that I've seen is certainly coming from the pro Kremlin side. Right. And that's about, you know, there are Nazis running the regime in, in Kiev, et cetera. Absurd for all the reasons you pointed out. I don't even think you mentioned that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine is a, is a Jew. So levying the, yeah, I mean, the I think that's sort of obvious enough that I wanted to yeah. get into some of the, to aspects that many yeah. people might not be aware of. 
So, and I, I think it's super helpful, but so that's the really dangerous propaganda, but there's also the, I mean, you know, kind of, kind of harmless, but also not helpful The like the whole ghost of Kiev thing, right? Like people sharing these uh, pictures from the, the, I don't know, one of these fighter jet video games and saying like, there's the ghost of Kiev and he shot down his, his fifth <laughs> rush. Exactly. So like, so no one really knows what is, what is true and what is not, or the, maybe the more recent example, the, um, the hospital bombing. Uh, the, uh, Russia bombed the maternity hospital and there are the images of uh, wounded pregnant women being evacuated from the hospital. And Russia says, oh no, that's just a, a crisis actor with, with paint on. And, you know, here's the same person in another uniform. And um, that's what I think Lavrov uh, went on television to say that as well. So there's a, there's a constant theme of, uh, of disinformation or at the very least misinformation uh, flying on both sides. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is this... Um, what does this conflict teach us about how sort of, uh, to use a Chinese term, really, uh, informationalized uh, warfare and conflict has become? I think it's decisive. I think that in a world where everything is so interconnected, where the world has gotten so much smaller, where information is instantaneous and where people have acute information overload, they're just flooded with so much infotainment that they can't really oftentimes when and especially when they have to focus on something serious, like an actual security crisis, a war yeah. with people dying in, 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 to this extent and uh, all this uh, indiscriminate devastation. It's difficult for people to quickly adapt mentally. And again, part, part of it is how do I make this something that I don't worry about too much and, and try to make it, a, make it more familiar to me, make it more understandable for me. That's one aspect of it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that it's very easy for people who have very large followings very influential for people to piece to, to to put a lot of this together because for people who aren't under who don't understand the nuances who don't have ready access to one group of sources and another group of sources and then you can compare that information and right. kind of come out somewhere in the middle like for example with how many casualties the russians have suffered just something as basic as that we still you know there, there's such a huge gap between what the russians have officially reported and the updates they provide and what the ukrainians keep reporting right and even our intelligence agencies and our uh, the, the Pentagon and et cetera, they uh, are trying to find a number in the middle, and that's difficult. And so when we can't even agree, find a consensus number and estimates for that, yeah. uh, think about every other part of the conflict. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's easy to play that game because uh, people, again, are just not particularly, if you're not very well informed about something, a lot of things that to people who do take a deep dive, doesn't make any sense, does begin to sound plausible and does begin to make sense. Uh, like the, the whole argument about Nazis. Again, I just brought in a few examples. If I hadn't provided the context for how many uh, ultra-nationalist members of parliament there are in Ukraine, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there were a lot more. Sure, I mean, yeah. you know, there are people who still to this day think, you know, even when it comes to, you know, coronavirus, that, you know, half the people who uh, would become infected end up hospitalized. I mean, there are a really large number of people yep. still believe that, for example, yep. even though we know the data doesn't say that. So you could be forgiven. I mean, I don't expect people to be experts in this. You were, I think, saying something earlier exactly right. Like, I don't expect the epidemiologists of Monday to become the Ukrainian experts of Tuesday. You they, know? they try, though. Uh, they try. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, that's uh, so all the, the, the best I think that we can do is to uh, try to be as balanced and fair as possible. This is. What's unique is it is a live streamed conflict. And I think that that's yeah. what the Russians don't quite understand. So when Putin, when you have someone who doesn't use the Internet, it's kind of hard to take that into account. So when you sure. have 
them saying patently absurd things, be it Putin or Lavrov or any of these people, just things that are just on their face ridiculous. You know, we're not, we ha we're not invading Ukraine, we're not targeting civilians, we're not doing... I mean, that's the problem, where this is a social media, live-streamed, in-real-time conflict. You can't play the games that you played in the 1990s, even, or the 1980s. Like, this isn't right. a, pl a place where you can impose an information blackout, and unless you're a correspondent who's uh, uh, embedded with this or that army, you have some sense of what's going on. Uh, so that, that, I think, really cuts against what the Russians are trying to do. And so a lot of the Russian narrative, uh, it's really left to people who are very, very skilled at this kind of contrarian, as I would say, game. And they're trying to, they're very clever in, in piecing together some of these different aspects that, uh, take, that when, when combined, don't really make much sense. But in isolation, uh, do seem to present a different... Uh, interpretation of what's actually happening from starting with, look, if this is a government that came to power, ultimately, if this is a successor to a government that came to power in an anti-constitutional, violent, pro-Western coup, uh, you know, we've done that plenty of times in the past. I mean, what's the difference mm -hmm. between, you know, Russia invading Ukraine and us invading Iraq in 2003 or a bombing Yugoslavia in 1999? I mean, Putin actually made that exact same argument. Uh, meaning I don't want to draw the connection that these people are, you know, on the payroll of anybody. I'm just saying that that's one way of looking at this, which is to say, why is Russia so, and, and Ukraine so fundamentally unique? Why should we care? I mean, clearly Ukraine is far closer to Russia, far more important to them. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if we went thousands of miles around the world to overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, why are we turning Russia into a pariah because of a conflict in a country that literally neighbors them, right? It just... Like, wh why are these two things not the same? And to uh, start and to discuss why they aren't the same and to look at this conflict on its own terms is a much taller order and much harder than the than you can fit in a 30 second or minute soundbite. It's much easier yeah. to send a volley of tweets pushing that narrative than it is to push back on it. Yeah, totally makes sense. Let's come back to the question of what happens next. I mean, you mentioned this is very, very difficult uh, to prognosticate uh, on, but what what do you think happens next? Uh, I think you already, I know you've said this on Twitter. I'm not sure if you exactly said it on here yet, but the campaign is not going well for the Russians. This was supposed to be over much more quickly than it has been. It's dragging on. They're, they're uh, losing people. Uh, from what we can tell, they're losing people at an astonishingly high rate and potentially having to backfill with even conscripts who are poorly trained. Uh, et cetera. But, but, you know, where does this go from here? What's the end state? Do we see a resolution that is, uh, you know, diplomatic? Do we see them reach a ceasefire agreement that holds? Uh, do they just keep going and keep throwing bodies at the problem? Or what do you think happens? Uh, it is somewhat difficult to say. I thought that, yes, objectively, it's not going well. There's been a, a lot of debates between people who are thinking that, you know, you're downplaying the scale of Russia's military successes, that operationally, they've taken more territory than has been acknowledged and they're in a much stronger strategic position. I don't think so because, again, going back to the kind of war that they intended to fight, the intention, the aim here strategically was not just to, uh, you know, seize Mariupol, build, a, you know, to, to, to occupy the entirety of those East Ukrainian regions and to build the land bridge to connect Crimea and, and then force some kind of a political settlement. If they wanted to do that, they would have fought a very different kind of war it would have been a very different campaign operationally. They would have just, that, that was the kind of thing that I thought they would almost, if they were going to invade, that's what they would focus on, that it would be, all of their forces would be concentrated in the South and it would be 
more of a limited incursion to see some more er uh, regions beyond those uh, East Ukrainian uh, areas. Yeah. They opted for a complete, a much more comprehensive uh, campaign to take over the country, and they did expect it to be over in two to four days, and that's why they front-loaded their special operations forces their, um, and their airborne uh, parachute troops uh, and some of their more elite armored units. But they really thought that it would be really similar to a couple of airborne drops uh, to seize key strategic key infrastructure, airports to take government buildings in Kiev, and it would all be over. And unfortunately, because they put those elite units up first, they suffered the heaviest casualties, and they don't have ready replacements for them. They don't have reserves that could uh, rise up to the level of, of those units that have basically been uh, cut to pieces now. And from uh, the assessments that I've been reading, and this isn't coming from Ukrainian sources, this is coming from uh, partly Russian sources and some Western sources that rely on uh, those who, uh, choosing to remain anonymous, you know, are in the FSB or in the Russian Defense Ministry, that the Russians are down to about a third of their pre-war effective combat-capable reserve. Uh, so they've already committed their entire uh, force that they concentrated prior to the invasion. They're now engaged in Ukraine, and they're down to a third of the reserve that they had built up for the invasion. And so the equipment losses in particular are devastating. Helicopters, tanks, armored personnel, carriers, to the point that they're trying to uh, not only bring, they have a shortage of trucks, that's particularly a problem logistically, of course. That's one of the reasons that you had, you know, this convoy north of Kiev wasn't really moving anywhere because they ran out of fuel and there were a lot of maintenance and equipment problems just breaking down. Uh, the weather isn't helping. And uh, they're trying to refurbish more obsolete tanks and armored vehicles to make them look more modern, to try to armor them up. It's, so they're really adapting on the fly right now. So the, the war that they wanted to fight was a quick two to four day blitzkrieg, basically. And they're now having to fight a, patriot, a more protracted patriotic war against the entirety of the Ukrainian population, in essence. Uh, wow. This is a, a much taller order and really blew apart all of the assumptions, I think, that Putin and his general staff had. So I think what we're seeing now, what we have been seeing, is a, a tactical adjustment, operational adjustment toward terror against the civilian population to try to sow chaos, to try to demoralize uh, what's left of Ukrainian regular army resistance, and to try to galvanize more Ukrainian civilians, partly to make the refugee crisis worse, and to try to apply more pressure on the Ukrainian government to reduce the suffering and reach a ceasefire agreement more quickly, because the Russians need the operational pause. So it's moved from yeah. the Russians want a deal because they have the strategic initiative and upper hand, and they can force very, very humiliating terms, the same ones that they began with, denazification, demilitarization, all of that from, from the outset. Now, I think... The goal for the Russians is they need an operational pause. They need to refit. They need to bring more of their battered formations out of the line. Some have already been redeployed back to Russia. They need to figure out what they're going to do with their de depleted reserves. They need to uh, reinforce. They haven't introduced martial law in Russia, uh, something that was a real fear a, a, a few days ago, uh, or ordered any kind of general mobilization. They really would prefer not to do that because that would really require them to call the war 
a war, which they would prefer not to do. Officially, this is a special military operation in peacetime that's being carried out. So they're doing every, they're, you know, trying to recruit Syrians and they're bringing the Chechens in and they're looking at getting the Chinese to provide them with some equipment uh, assistance. They're looking at the Belarusians. So they're, they're certainly in a, in a much worse shape than they were at the beginning. And so I think that uh, there are really two possibilities here. Recently, I thought that uh, Putin would double down. He already has escalated, clearly, from what he was intending to do in the first few days. Uh, the indiscriminate, the use of cluster bombs, the indiscriminate mm -hmm. shelling of these large cities, what you're seeing in Mariupol, clearly, you know, just wiping out. Uh, the mayor of Chernihiv, for example, said the suburbs yeah. of the city have just been wiped out completely. Uh, Kharkiv has just been effectively reduced to rubble. 600 multi-story apartment buildings have been destroyed. I mean, That's think amazing, about what that yeah. means, right? So, I mean, wow. this is a systematic campaign of terror against the civilian population out of, in my view, uh, exasperation at the operational failures. They can't achieve For sure. the breakthrough that they want. They can't encircle Kharkiv. They can't encircle Kiev. They certainly can't take Kiev right now. So they're doing what they can to, to escalate how they can, short of, you know, raising this to the point of using weapons of mass destruction, which uh, I think uh, there is a non-zero chance still of that happening and something that they might be, that Putin might be entertaining personally. Uh, but from what I've been hearing from well-placed Ukrainian sources, that the reports of progress in the ceasefire discussions are true. Uh, there was a um, Financial Times article today sort of, trying to uh, paint the contours of a potential deal. I don't really know, can't comment on how accurate that is. But from sure. some of the Ukrainian sources that I follow, who I trust, who are credible, who are not going to, you know, aren't there saying, you know, uh, uh, out on the front line just trying to exaggerate things. They said that uh, the reports that they are making progress are accurate and that the Ukrainians are putting forward very tough demands. So it's not simply the Russians just running the table and yep. imposing these humiliating terms, that that's the position that they're in. No, the Russians uh, really are being pushed to be far more realistic, recognizing that they need the operational pause more than anybody else does. And uh, these terms would really n prevent the Russians, if they end up in the final agreement, from spinning this as the anything like the kind of victory that they thought that they would be winning, uh, which might include a substantial or full withdrawal of Russian troops back to where they were on February 23rd. Now, that's something that I've said we should have been insisting on from the very beginning. I think we should, yeah, the U.S. Think. should be playing a much more active role in these negotiations. I think, uh, to me, I, I just think back to Vietnam and the Paris Peace Agreement that was signed where South Viet North Vietnamese troops remained on South Vietnamese territory. So mm -hmm. we were able to get a ceasefire, we were able to remove our troops, but the North Vietnamese didn't go anywhere. And then two years yep. later, of course, they, you know, the tanks were in Saigon. So yep. I, I can't really envision a situation where the Russians can just, to use... Uh, Stay in Ukraine. Yeah, it, but yeah essentially uh, vernacular to uh, cash in their gains or lock in their gains and just simply annex the territories that they've captured from the start of the invasion. I think that would be... Right a very, very difficult place for the Ukrainians to find themselves in, especially yeah. if they have to make any concessions on the size of their military or the kind of assistance we could give them going forward. Because I'm convinced 
and I've said this multiple times, unfortunately, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine will not end so long as Vladimir Putin is in the Kremlin. So essentially what we're talking about here is not a ceasefire or a deal that could end the war. It's merely a pause before the Russians are in a position to try again, because Putin is yep. not going to stop. For him, this is an ideological idea fix, if you will. And I yeah. you know, keep trying to push back against people who are, and you're getting a lot of voices here for, for a number of reasons. Take the deal you know, to Zelensky. Why is Zelensky putting his people in danger like this, putting so many lives needlessly at risk? He knows there won't be a no-fly zone. He knows this won't happen. He knows that won't happen. Just take the terms. Accept that Crimea is part of Russia. Accept that those two Donbass regions are part of Russia. You know, just that you won't be part of NATO and all will be well. It won't be well, unfortunately. You know, right. I mean, if it was right. that easy, I mean... That's a pretty rosy Putin, picture, but it's not true, yeah. Yeah, and Putin didn't, and I keep saying, if that's all that Putin actually was after, he wouldn't have launched the invasion that he did. He wouldn't have even invaded at all. I mean, in other words... Uh, what exactly changed in the six months or a year prior to the invasion that put any of that at risk? Was there some kind of imminent threat that the Ukrainians were going to take over those separatist enclaves? No. Mm-hmm. Were they going to invade Crimea and take it by force? No. Was there any prospect of them entering NATO? Also no. In fact, the German chancellor told Putin, I think about a week or something before the invasion when he went to Moscow or in, in one of their last conversations, pointedly, Germany will not support Ukraine being a member of NATO. There was no realistic chance that Ukraine would be a yeah. member of NATO, and he invaded anyway. So, you know, I really am just, you know, it, it is exhausting kind of dealing with a lot of this because you just keep making these points, and, and yet we keep hearing the same, what I call almost either straw men or, or I would really call them red herring arguments time yeah. and time again. They keep coming back, and, and that's what we yeah. need to be prepared for. So I think uh, from people who I... Um, uh, think are who I believe are somewhat more credible that we could see some sort of a ceasefire agreement within the next few weeks, or at most a month or longer uh, near the end of April and May, if the Russians decide on one more attempt to bring up some additional reserves and try to strengthen their position operationally even more in the south. Maybe if they want to finish trying to attempt to seize Mariupol, or if they want to make a desperate move on Kharkiv and try to take it, that's a distinct possibility. But uh, I think that's around where we're probably going to end up, unless uh, Putin makes a decision to really escalate with extreme violence up to and including use of weapons of mass destruction. I'm hoping that there's less of a chance of that than I thought there would be even a week ago when I commented on it, but we can't rule anything out. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So, uh, and let's talk about it sort of with respect to U.S. involvement. Um, the U.S. obviously has no boots on the ground in Ukraine, not even a jet in the air. We've supplied a lot of lethal aid to Ukraine, and we've supplied a ton of humanitarian aid. But uh, Biden has been very, uh, very adamant about not being involved beyond that. There are um, significant and uh, maybe maybe not growing anymore, but as of a week ago, they were growing, and now they're pretty significant calls for a no-fly zone. And that would look like um, uh, that would look like U.S. and NATO air assets enforcing uh, all of Ukraine airspace uh, uh, to be closed off to Russian jets so that they cannot bomb uh, the Ukrainian people. 
Um, and the the chief counter argument that I've seen to this is that this risks escalation because it involves the U.S. and NATO um, in the conflict far more than simply supplying lethal and humanitarian aid, and risks a a, uh, a nuclear escalation. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham was on the news I think two days ago saying he doesn't buy that because he thinks the whole nuclear thing is just a is just a bluff by Putin. But obviously, you have a, a dissenting opinion, so uh, tell me more about the potential risk there. Well, it's interesting that I like to also go to what the Ukrainians are saying about this themselves, not just Zelensky, who's publicly bringing up the no-fly zone, it seems, almost in every one of his appearances, every one of his press conferences, but uh, Ukrainians who are, you know, commentators and people who are close to the administration, who have access, who have a, a better understanding of what's realistic and what isn't. And what they're increasingly, even though they would prefer a no-fly zone uh, and believe that that would uh, make operationally a difference on the ground, although I do accept the NATO uh, official position, which is essentially we can't enforce this because it's not just a question of dogfights with Russian fighters over in Ukrainian airspace. It's having to proactively take out Russian anti-air batteries in Belarus and in Russia itself. So we'd have to uh, right. ally sorties into those countries, and that would inevitably provoke a interstate direct conflict with Russia. Uh, but what they're saying is, okay, you know, uh, we can close our own sky, provided we have the anti-air assets that we need, uh, provided that we have right, better anti-air capabilities, not just the stingers that have been provided, we're, we're seeing today, you know, what, what should have been provided before the conflict, you know, basically something like the Iron Dome, like David Sling from Israel, like uh, man pads that have been sent in drones that Turkey has provided, etc. So a lot of this should have been provided much sooner than it was. So now their view is give us a lot more of that to be able to, and, and, and the Ukrainian airspace remains contested. This is also something people need to understand. Their view is sort of, well, and it's, I think even those like Graham who are saying this, they're almost making the argument that the Russians have air superiority. They don't. And that's something that people kind of need to understand that the Ukrainian Air Force has not been destroyed. Ukrainian anti-air capabilities have not been completely destroyed, despite what the Russians are saying. It's still officially mm -hmm. contested. And the Russians are suffering very severe helicopter and aircraft losses. But the Ukrainians want more of those anti-air capabilities, and they also do want fighter aircraft to be transferred. That was the whole uh, controversy with the MiGs from Poland and how best to handle that and what could be transferred right. and what couldn't. But I think in terms of the nuclear war bluff, uh, it again, there is a split because I would have thought that it was a bluff, but then again, I didn't think he would invade Ukraine the way that he did. At this point, exactly. we don't really know yeah. what he's thinking because honestly, the more that he speaks, the less convinced I am that he's really in touch with reality. Uh, I mean, even today, he gave a very one of his stranger addresses uh, where I mean, just there's so much going on there that it's you know even a psychiatrist would have problems kind of understanding yeah. what what he believes yeah. and what he doesn't so if i i mean as as if i was an elected member of if i was the president if i was making these decisions i would not take that risk if i didn't have to absolutely and i think that zelensky understands that it won't happen that doesn't mean that he doesn't have as an, an obligation to his people and to the strength of his government to keep pressing that case to keep making that argument but I think he knows that it's not going to happen realistically. But he, it's under, that's why people are like, why does he keep bringing this up? Well, why wouldn't he keep bringing this up? He'll, he keeps bringing the, the, the issue up. It's 
uh, our government's responsibility to make it clear what we are, where we are prepared to go and the limits of our support. So I would not support yeah. the no-fly zone because I do believe that, A, it's not uh, essential. There are other mm -hmm. ways, like what I've just described, that we can make yeah. a, a difference in the air without going that far. Uh, and the Russians are in a much weaker position now than they were when these calls began, when you had Lindsey Graham making that argument. Uh, yeah. And I think, again, the bottom line is, thanks to the scale of the Ukrainian resistance and the effectiveness of the Ukrainian resistance, things are happening. Uh, the dynamics have really fundamentally changed, I think. And yeah, um, makes sense. And so that, that's what I would say on that on that particular point. But and maybe you would want to comment on this as a former USAF uh, someone in the USAF with an intelligence background, somebody who has would be much closer to this potentially, you know, there are ways that we can be smart about asymmetric and hybrid warfare to become more involved without officially being involved. And I like to cite the Soviets did this all the time during the Cold War in Korea, where Soviet pilots flew MiGs, sorties, and what was called MiG Alley during the Korean War yeah, fighting yeah. against American uh, fighters. Uh, uh, against the U.S. Air Force, everyone knew that they were there, but officially they weren't. People could intercept right. and clear, you know, their their comms, and they could hear Russian being spoken. They knew what was going on. Same thing in Vietnam. Uh, and look what the Russian and I, I I tweeted this actually. If the Russians could figure out how to literally create countries out of nowhere in East Ukraine, these fake republics mm -hmm. that were taken over by FSB officers by. Uh, uh, regular Russian army units that just engineered an administrative takeover. Then they flooded those areas with Russian passports and created all of this out of thin air. And were able to then use these fictitious enclaves, these constructs, as a justification to launch a full-scale invasion. If they can go that far, why can't we figure out how to transfer Polish MiGs given to us to the Ukrainians? I really can't figure that out. I mean, what are we spending billions of dollars uh, off in the NDAA for the defense budget on. I mean, we keep hearing yeah. about our hybrid warfare capabilities. Where are they? In other words, and there's this, and, and, and to, to kind of close that point off about World War III, you keep hearing direct war. There's this view, well, look, it, there's a choice between doing nothing and World War III where U.S. pilots and Russian pilots are engaged in open combat, officially. There's a huge in-between there. I mean, that's yeah, a very, very true. broad spectrum. There's a lot of space between those two extremes. Uh, and who's to say, and, and I to say, well, you know, the Ukrainian pilots aren't going to be able to fly F-16s, F-30. They're not going to be able to fly American planes. They haven't been trained on them with the uh, with the electronics. They, they don't really know how to, they, to handle them properly. They can only fly on what they've been trained on, which is these uh, Soviet-era MiGs. Well, who's to say Ukrainian pilots have to be Ukrainians? In other words, who's to say that a discharged U.S. Air Force veteran can't volunteer to become a member of the Ukrainian Air Force? He's a Ukrainian pilot yeah. because he's a member of the Ukrainian Air Force, and he's trained right. to fly those planes. So why can't he be flying them as a Ukrainian pilot? In other words, I would hope that there are those in our intelligence agencies at the National Security Council at the Pentagon gaming this out. Because to me, this seems like what we should be focusing on a lot more 
than having these very loud, noisy debates about no-fly zones. And I've been trying to say that really on and off since this began. And it seems like it just isn't in people's interest to focus on this, and instead it's in people's interest to say, here are all the things we can't do. Going immediately to the extremes, so that we can kind of keep this problem compartmentalized and at a distance. Uh, and I, I find that really frustrating. I mean, this is the time, this is an, I like to say it's an Apollo 13 situation. And if we had this, you know, if, if Mission Control in Houston, right, had this approach to Apollo 13, they would have never been, yeah. been able to come home, right? I mean, that, that, that's where yeah. we are right now. We're in an Apollo 13 yeah. situation, trying to figure out what we can get to the Ukrainians. And, and the final point, I think we should, and the final point on that, if the Russians have already threatened to attack NATO supply convoys and trains, armed shipments to the Ukrainians, so if they're targeting armed shipments of javelins, then what's the difference between supplying the Ukrainians with javelins and fighter jets? Right? Yeah. So they've already escalated. Yeah. They've already, the Russians yeah. have already made their move in that regard in terms of what they're threatening to do. Now it's time to call their bluff here. We're not going to be in a position where we're not going to do anything. So yeah. I think we should test how far the Russians are actually prepared to go. And I don't think that they're prepared to go to that extent. I don't think that they are actually going to be attacking NATO-marked supply convoys. Uh, weapons. I'd be surprised, yeah. So, I, but, but again, like you said, I, I was surprised when it kicked off in the first place, so... But yeah, I, I don't see I don't see a material difference between supplying an old um, fighter jet and uh, supplying, you know, thousands of javelins or or even just today was announced that we're sending over a bunch of legacy SAMs surface air missile systems. And I don't really see a material difference between that and, and getting a, an old MiG into the Ukrainian Air Force's hands. So, yeah, I'm, I'm puzzled by that particular decision as well, like you are, Boris. Uh, I've just got a couple more questions sure. for you. One, let's shift gears and, and uh, zoom out globally a little bit. I want to ask you about sort of some global implications of this. I'm thinking um, perhaps most especially about uh, the China-Taiwan uh, crisis. Uh, well, it's not really, it's not, I mean, I guess it's an, it's an ongoing, long-running, decades-long decades crisis, but uh, but there's not a, it's, it's a flashpoint, potential flashpoint uh, in the future. What implications does, uh, does this maybe have for the um, Taiwan's, you know, defense of Taiwan scenario? Um, or, uh, other, other, you know, other problems with respect to China, um, China potentially, there, there's some indications that Russia deliberately waited till after the Olympics because it wanted China's support in doing this and didn't want to distract from China hosting the Olympics in Beijing, uh, this past winter. So they waited until it was done and then Putin invaded, um, China has, has not clearly signaled support of this, but they've also not been, uh, been loud in condemning what Russia has done. Um, and, uh, and I think this has, uh, this has pretty significant implications for just how China views itself. Um, and I think it has serious implications for how China is watching Russia and what happens, uh, with respect to the international community, um, for a potential, uh, Taiwan scenario in the future. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. And then I want to go back to the Russia thing and just ask you, uh, you mentioned this at the beginning before we started recording, but just ask, ask you about the, some of the theological, um, uh, things at play there, especially with the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, I was also listening to a podcast this morning with a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Church um, who was uh, talking about the plight of the Ukrainian uh, Catholic people. Uh, was also saying that the, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is the second largest Catholic Church in the world after, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, there are millions of Ukrainians who are in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Um, 
and they do not have a friendly relationship, obviously, with the Russian Orthodox Church. But I'm wondering, uh, you know, more of your thoughts on that and what the the Metropolitan in Moscow has to say on the subject, if anything, um, whether or not Putin feels like he has the backing of his Metropolitan, uh, and 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 what the uh, what the implications of that are, uh, if any. So uh, let's let's take each of those two things in turn. Sure. Uh, I think in terms of China and Taiwan, uh, I agree with the uh, counterintuitive argument that the invasion in Ukraine makes a near-term Chinese attempt to seize Taiwan by force far less likely than it already was, uh, and especially if given the Russian relative military underperformance, which I think to the Chinese yep. borders almost on humiliation. There is, yep. it, it, it's a somewhat similar syndrome that the Russians and the Chinese had in that neither country has engaged in an interstate conflict with a modern nation-state army in many, many yeah. decades. The last time the Chinese really fought an interstate war was in 1979 when during uh, the Cambodian-Vietnam events. And there was a, uh, a cross-border issue there. There were some disputes with the Soviets in the late 60s that did result in some skirmishes, but thankfully didn't spill over into large-scale Nothing large-scale, yeah. Uh, we then have to go back to the Korean War with the Chinese intervention there, but that's really ancient history. as a very different army than what the Chinese currently have. So the Chinese have tried to really puff up, uh, propagandize the scale of their military overhaul, how much they're spending on defense, the, the size of their deterrent, which is under a matter of uh, still great secrecy and, and debate. And they really are trying to present themselves. You're seeing a dramatic increase in official state PR of how the Chinese are fielding a modern set of capabilities on air, land, and sea. They've you know, unveiled a new aircraft carrier. They're trying to really emphasize how they've expanded their special operations forces, their parachute, airborne forces, uh, and the size of their land army, and relying less on... Uh, basically human cannon fodder, for, for lack of a better word, uh, less manpower and more on modern technology. But none of this has been tested. So we haven't seen this in an actual combat situation, a scenario. All we've seen right. are these grand training exercises where both the Russians and the Chinese often exercise together. In fact, recently in the, uh, I think the most recent exercises in the Far East, the Russians were uh, conducting those exercises under PLA, the People's Liberation Army, Chinese officers. So the Chinese officers were uh, commanding Russian units, participating in the exercises. That is an, it, tells, it gives you an insight as to the Russian-Chinese security relationship and how they see their yeah, relative strength. Sure. So I think the Chinese seeing how the Russians, after doing pretty much the same thing, the vaunted, overhauled, modernized Russian army, you know, Putin touted his hypersonic weapons that could circumnavigate the globe and how much was invested in overhauling the submarine fleet and, and this and that. Being utterly humiliated, uh, not able to carry yeah. out a two to four day offensive, which the Chinese believed that the Russians would be able to do. I think that has to be underscored here that I think she and Chinese commanders really believed what Putin was telling them. And the general staff in Russia was telling them this would be over very quickly. The Ukrainians would melt away. This would be uh, almost like a cakewalk. And now it's the third week. And they're looking at the casualties. They can see this massive underperformance. And they're thinking, look, you know, we can't afford a repeat of this politically because, you know, if Putin comes away with this being publicly humiliated, 
as far as his inner circle is concerned and as far as the Russian public writ large, that this can't be spun as an unambiguous victory and the true scale mm-hmm. of the Russian losses are made known throughout the country, that has immediate political implications for Putin personally, possibly even lethal implications, maybe. But to the Chinese, yeah. it's exactly the same situation, and for Xi personally, Xi Jinping, and uh, he certainly doesn't want to preside over what will become a grinding, protracted, uh, failed operation that doesn't go exactly according to plan. So there's a, a real fear right. of losing face. So that, I think, is one aspect of this. But uh, it, and, and I actually was on a staff delegation when I, I worked on the Hill, when I uh, was Cruz's uh, national security advisor, uh, went with other staffers to Taiwan, met with officials there. Um, mm. Obviously, some things, you know, I, I'm, I'm not able to disclose uh, in terms of what was discussed, but the, it had some insight into what their broader defensive strategy against a potential Chinese invasion would be. But what I heard was, aside from, here's what we need from the U.S. in terms of direct military aid, assistance, funding, and, you know, we want the U.S. to emphasize that it will come to our aid and and, and what you would expect to hear from them. What they said also was that they're much more concerned with indirect uh, takeover by stealth by the Chinese without a shot being fired. And most of that has to do with Chinese investment in Taiwan, overlapping control and ownership of Taiwanese companies or companies based in Taiwan. There's There's so many synergies and so much direct influence of the mainland in Taiwan right now, that officials were saying that in five to 10 years, unless this is radically reversed, they won't even need to invade. You know, so that's something that I think very often isn't given a lot of, is given short shrift, Mm -hmm. especially in our media, because we tend to just focus on the uh, military invasion security aspect of this. But that that was something that resonated with me. And uh, I think that that's not going to change. And I think that the Chinese have enough uh, at stake already and, and are tied enough to the status quo as it is that I don't expect them to make any new near-term moves. I could be wrong, but uh, I think if the Russians had succeeded as planned, uh, possibly I might have changed my mind about that, but now I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm different sure discussion. they won't. Um, and okay. uh, in terms of wider geopolitical implications, I think beyond that quickly, um, unfortunately, uh, I view this as a strategic opportunity of a lifetime for the U.S. I think we should already be thinking beyond this military operational phase of what's going on. I think this is a moment that, look, you know, we we were in a very difficult position with the Afghanistan withdrawal fiasco. Now the Russians made a severe strategic miscalculation. They blundered. Uh, Even if they managed to crawl away from this temporarily they're weaker than they were when the invasion began. And I think that we need to use this to our advantage to try to engage some of their partners, Iran, India in particular, uh, looking at some other countries in the Middle East that are watching this very closely, and even the Chinese, to try to uh, recover some of what we lost in the aftermath of that Afghanistan episode. And uh, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. our leadership has not been very successful in doing that. It's been the exact opposite. You're seeing India openly saying that they are going to buy Russian oil at a discount. We weren't able to persuade them to not do that and to join our uh, campaign to isolate Russia. 
And instead, we've right. now resorted to moral preening and lecturing and hectoring. You saw Jen Psaki. What side of history do you want to be on? I, mean, uh, know, I, I commented on phrase. this. She basically said, when the history books are written, what side does India want to be <laughs> on? And I responded, well, uh, what side was the U.S. on during Operation Searchlight when Pakistan committed a genocide? And, and, I mean, there's no other way of word yeah. to, to describe. We were in Bangladesh, yeah. what became Bangladesh, and what was then East Pakistan. Hundreds of thousands of Bengalis were yeah. killed. The U.S. supported Pakistan. That's what India would say in response. So how about yeah. it, 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 instead of moral preening, which is going to get us nowhere, we should be speaking the language of national interest. How would we gain? How would they yes. gain from Russia's misadventure? And, and how can we take advantage right. of this? We're not doing that. So the Chinese have now yeah. made their move. They've now signed a new agreement with the Saudis to begin potentially pricing their oil transactions in yuan uh, rather than in dollars. The Saudis are, of course, not picking up Joe Biden, President Biden's calls. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just... That, that's big. I, I mean, those, it, are, know, those are big developments. Looking at this. I'm sorry, go ahead. Th those are big developments, yeah. I mean, that's, right. this, I is, mean, so this is serious. So it, it's just we're, we're, we're sort of almost standing on the sidelines as bystanders watching this unfold, watching... Not not taking advantage of this opportunity, and I'm a history buff myself, not just mm -hmm. kind of Russian European history. I love American history, different types, yeah. and I always like to draw these historical parallels because knowing about the past, not just the Santayana quote, you know, if you don't learn the past, you're bound to repeat right, it. Right. The arcs of history are everywhere, and you could always find a historical parallel in in so many different areas. And I'd like to say that we're now run by the political equivalents of George McClellan in the American Civil mm -hmm. War. And mm. what was, uh, you know, to quote Abraham Lincoln, who called him a very capable engineer with a special talent for stationary engines. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in the sense that he literally, there was, uh, he, he could not find, there, there was no military opportunity to achieve any kind of big breakthrough or victory that he failed yeah. to take advantage of in his entire yeah. career. This was probably the most cautious Union general uh, in the entire conflict. So he repeatedly made excuses for why he could not do what was easily but he was easily able right in front to, of even when he had, yeah. you know, Robert E. Lee's operational plan, he still couldn't defeat his army. Like that's who we're led by right now. And, and, and that you have the national security advisor meeting with the Chinese to press on them why they should join an embargo against Russia and why they should not aid Russia directly to continue its invasion. Well, maybe try to think of ways to compel them not to do those yes. things. Right. You know, to put them in a position where they have where they would view it as being in their interest not to do those things rather than engaging in a seven hour lecture where the Chinese, I think, probably just laughed in his face. In fact, as soon as that meeting that he had with I think it was the Chinese foreign minister was over, a spokesperson yep. for the foreign ministry started on about Black Lives Matter, American human rights abuses or whatever. I mean. I have I, clearly a mockery. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's almost like not none of our senior officials are taken seriously. And I know I, I yeah. think maybe it was before we started recording. You mentioned Kamala and Kamala Harris and her uh, layman's explanation for what's happening in the world and uh, how how yeah. how Americans should understand what's going on. And then, you know, sending her to Poland where she believed that pretended Ukraine was part of NATO and didn't know. it. Yeah. I mean, even even those who are really scared right now, really, really concerned about the geopolitical implications, the Poles, mm -hmm. the Baltic countries, etc. What signal does this send to them that this is who you're sending over there? To yeah, quote, absolutely. NATO, right? 
And uh, and and to to on the final point here, uh, and and this I think can spill over into the theological discussion a bit as well. You're seeing in Eastern Europe a what I think is a truly historic realignment. And to me, mm. you know, it's it's there's it, there's so many jokes that have been made about this. You know, a Jewish president of Ukraine leading Ukraine in a patriotic war against Russia, with Poland being the main ally of Ukraine. It's like, yeah. you know. You know, uh, what uh, the 16th century would like its history back. You know what I mean? Yeah, just, seriously, seriously. It, just everything is being just completely altered seismically in that part of the world before our eyes. Not a lot yeah. of people, I think, have commented on it to to a great extent uh, on, on on our side of the uh, of the pond and, and analysis. But uh, Poland is really becoming stepping in as being, I think, a much much more important anchor state. In not just NATO, but in Eastern Europe as a whole, you're seeing Ukraine clearly orient itself toward Poland. I'm almost joking that the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that existed centuries ago with Ukraine being a part of it is going to be resurrected soon at this point. Yeah, seriously, you know, they're, they're, they're halfway there. Gave, yeah, Zelensky gave a speech in the Polish Sejm with the, the parliament where he said, we, Ukrainians and Poles, are 90 million people. So he's almost trying to shatter all of these borders, boundaries wow, between yeah. and Ukrainians who have had a very, very difficult, testy, complicated history for centuries. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so many things like this are happening, and I think we uh, are not um, quite—maybe it's because of the people that we have at top table, or we, we're, it really looks like there's too much near-termism on our end. We're not seeing these global geopolitical shifts happening in real time. We're being too yeah. reactive. We're thinking five days ahead instead of five months or five years ahead right now, where we, when we should be thinking uh, of the latter. Um, so I think that's my quick two cents of the the broader landscape as it stands now. Yeah. Uh, and on that's, the that's helpful. point that you asked, um, I think unfortunately, well, first of all, there there is you know the split between not just the Ukrainian Catholic church because obviously this this goes to the re religious demographics of the ukrainian population as a whole so the western part of ukraine that's solidly pro-european that traces itself back to poland and uh the austrian empire austria hungary the habsburgs uh, that part of ukraine was not under russian political control or russian influence mm -hmm. really until uh uh, really until the 20th century. So th that that's the part where, you know, Lviv is the kind of principal city in that part of the country. And it was at one point called Lemberg, which is the German uh, from, from the, the period of Habsburg-Austrian control, okay. uh, the German name for the city. And it was really a, a massive, you know, cosmopolitan hodgepodge, uh, both uh, in different types of demographics, religious included, Orthodox, Jewish, Catholic, you know, you name it. And... Uh, but and then after the First World War, when Poland became independent and Austria-Hungary uh, was broken up and collapsed, much of that area that used to be under Polish control, sorry, Austrian control, came under Polish control. But of course, both Austria, Hungary, and Poland were Catholic states, so that Catholic right. presence was and remains very, very powerful. Influence in that part of Ukraine remains very in the very Western powerful. half of Ukraine. So you're seeing right now, you know, a lot of pictures coming out of. Uh, parishioners uh, worshiping in a Catholic cathedrals, Catholic churches in Lviv, etc. That's completely to be expected given the 
incredibly strong, important role of the Ukrainian Catholic Church there because of yeah, that history. Makes sense. Uh, but much of the rest of the country is Orthodox. That was always mm-hmm. the traditional, that, that was at the core of a lot of the conflict between Poland and much of the Ukrainian population uh, for many centuries, and then also the Ukrainians and the Austrians uh, for, for that reason. There's always that religious misunderstanding and divide. And within the broader Orthodox world, Christian world, there is a uh, split among different patriarchates and different denominations, just as there is uh, really within Protestantism in the Christian world, uh, in, in, in the Western Christian world. Um, between you have, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church, you have uh, others in Armenia, Georgia, you have uh, other Orthodox denominations there, the Serb Orthodox Church. Uh, and then the Ukrainian and the Russian Orthodox churches with different patriarchates, different church structures, organizations, and leaderships. And so traditionally, the relationship between the Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox patriarchates has been on and off. I think for, to a large extent, you know, they were both uh, equal victims of the period of Soviet uh, repression and uh, the deep freeze in which the, the Orthodox church was under. Uh, there was really not much in the way of distinct, distinction at that point. Uh, the Russian Patriarchate was uh, seen as the senior of the two, uh, obviously had a much larger following. But uh, in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, and especially as these conflicts between Russia and Ukraine intensified, uh, there have been much more vocal splits, not just among uh, the leadership, but among the, uh, well, not just parishioners, but uh, lower level priests, those kind of below in the hierarchy. Uh, and, you're, and, and there also were some splits within the Russian Orthodox Church itself among lower-level priests who have a very different take and view, don't agree with what the patriarch Kirill, at the uh, current patriarch, has been saying about the war, mm-hmm. and have said this publicly, uh, knowing full well what the consequences would be both under Russian law and uh, from, or the, from their superiors yeah. in the church. So... Um, at the moment, the split is very clear. The Ukrainian patriarch came out very vocally condemning Russia's invasion, calling it a sin, what you would expect him to say, using yeah. similar language to that of the uh, the Pope in Rome. Uh, Francis and uh, Kirill, who is the uh, Russian Orthodox patriarch, is full swing behind the war, uh, wow. believes that it's uh, almost like a holy crusade. And uh, justified vengeance again uh, to, to you know kind of retribution for the eight years of genocide and mass murder against you know the Russian-speaking population of the Donbass. That it, you keep hearing this a lot. Where were you for yeah, eight wow. years as the Ukrainians were killing Russians in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass? So this is all justified. So it sounds like in that way the Russian Orthodox Church is basically just a propaganda arm of the uh, state at this point. Yes, I, I think that we've entered something similar to what existed near, you know, the turn of the, kind of reached its peak, I guess, um, at the turn of the last century before the Russian Revolution of the slogan, yeah. uh, for God, for the Tsar, and for the motherland. Uh, so yeah. where you had the church, the Orthodox Church, becoming an instrument of the state uh, and a propaganda tool to, uh, to whoever happens to be ensconced in the Kremlin and following uh, the official Russian government line. By choice. What was interesting here, and this is a bit tangential, but I think somewhat important, that the predecessor of the current Russian patriarch was much more independent. That he wouldn't, hmm. despite the tremendous pressure 
that he was on uh, that he was under from Kremlin authorities, and the fact that because Putin has seen uh, the kind of very showy revitalization of the church and the role of the church, honestly, you know, a lot of this is for show. I mean, Putin isn't exactly you know a very pious individual. He's not exactly. A, a God-fearing, uh, church-going person. Right. Again, this is all he's be, wrapping yeah. himself in the flag. He's wrapping himself in the Second World War. He exploits that shamelessly, and he's wrapping himself in the Orthodox Church because how could you go against the Orthodox Church? I mean, again, this is yeah. turning himself into almost like a new czar, like a, kind of that, that slogan. But the predecessor of the current patriarch, despite all the money that was thrown at the church, despite the restored... Um, cathedrals and frescoes and monuments, despite the rehabilitation of priests, despite a lot that the state had done officially to try to elevate the church and uh, increase the number of parishioners to pass laws that would benefit the church family, oriented type laws uh, that the church would officially agree with. He was more independent when it came to some of these issues in not just being a mouthpiece uh, for Putin and whatever the Kremlin wanted him to be. And he was sidelined uh, very publicly. It's actually uh, still a matter of contention as to how he was eliminated. Uh, he, I think there was a, he untimely died, the circumstances mm. of which remain kind of uh, open to controversy of whether it was altogether natural. Uh, but wow. the, basically, his successor is very much a part, a, a Kremlin man. And so, uh, you know, that, that really is the big dividing line in that the Ukrainian church is really much more of a standalone, independent religious organization, spiritual organization, whereas the Russian church is very much a political arm of the Kremlin. And I think that this is also something that the uh, that Western Catholicism, uh, the, the, from Francis on down the, the Pope to uh, Catholic churches in the West, have a difficult time wrapping their heads around. I, I think whether it was today, correct me, uh, a call, a uh, con video conference between Kirill and Francis. Uh, I think that was today, yeah. Yeah, about the conflict and Francis saying what any person with any kind of ounce of humanity, piety, uh, religious deference or devotion would be saying, exactly what we've been saying. You know, I mean, this is a sin, it's uh, a, a humanitarian catastrophe, and then Kirill basically yep. just spouting off the talking points, right? So, and what's really tragic here is the implications of this for Orthodox Catholic reconciliation, meaning Russian Orthodox and Western Catholic reconciliation that John Paul II worked so hard to, yeah. to, to establish. That was really one of his main areas of, of focus during his time as Pope. Uh, and uh, tremendous strides were made, obviously, the reconciliation with the with world Jewry and, and, and also these other denominations of Protestant denominations, but especially the Orthodox world, because it was brought out from the cold with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he, of course, saw that as a personal mission, and a lot of bridges were built, uh, and it really looked like uh, a new era had begun. I think mm -hmm. after yeah. this, given how so almost criminally politicized the Russian Orthodox Church has become, I don't really see a lot more progress being made without some really fundamental changes in behavior and attitude. Yeah. I know that internal to the Orthodox Church, the global Orthodox Church, now I'm talking about not just the Russian Orthodox, um, uh, Patriarch Kirill uh, is, 
has made a lot of moves that have put him out of favor with the other patriarchs. And so this doesn't even bode well for the Russian Orthodox Church remaining in in unimpaired communion with the rest of the Orthodox. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it is it is certainly a shame, though. It's it's crazy to see someone who professes to be a man of God spout the talking points so so readily and just Im- imbibe the imbibe the lies of of Putin to enable a regime like that. It's crazy. Uh, well, Boris, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know this has been a long conversation, but I've learned a ton and I've really enjoyed picking your brain. Um, where can my listeners and viewers follow your work and uh, and follow along with your thoughts on all things Ukraine, Russia, national security, as I've enjoyed doing over the past few weeks? Sure, you can follow me. I think the best place uh, is on Twitter with my Twitter handle, uh, B-R-Y-V-K-I-N, uh, B-Rifkin, which is my, the first letter of my first name and my last name. You can follow me there to search for Boris Rifkin there. Uh, I will be unrolling, uh, hope too soon, a number of new projects and ventures uh, that I think uh, hopefully your listeners, your audience would find very interesting, not necessarily just exclusively related to political analysis or, or this topic or anything like that. It would be uh, kind of attracting a, a somewhat broader audience, maybe less policy centric, but uh, that's where that will be announced and, and, and marketed, if you will. And uh, so you could just, you know, I'm there very frequently. So uh, that's where you can track uh, my thoughts and, and, and kind of where I am with all the endeavors I'm working on. That sounds great. Well, that has piqued my curiosity. It sounds like you're not ready to share any, any sneak previews or, uh, or hints of what's to come. But, uh, okay. Fair enough. Great. Well, uh, I was going to ask you, you've done some work in policy circles, obviously working as Ted Cruz's national security advisor. Do you have a, a, a hankering to get back into, I mean, you, you've outlined some serious problems with the current establishment as well. So do you have a hankering to get back, back in the arena in that sense, or do you, uh, do you see your mission elsewhere? Uh, I think I would want to get back into, into the arena. Um, maybe on somewhat different terms, maybe in, in a different capacity than was the case before. Yeah. I think right now, you know, it's always, now it's what I, you know, kind of the peak of the silly season. Uh, there's a bit of a political wilderness right now. Nobody really knows exactly who's going to be on the up and who's going to be uh, kind of on the sidelines and out of favor. So uh, I think, you know, we just have to see how things will develop. You know, I, uh, as you kind of began the uh, our discussion, you know, I you know, have my portfolio company that I'm trying to develop and, and this the projects that I'm about to unveil will be part and parcel of that. Uh, more kind of information services, I think, tying into what I did in my past life as an M&A corporate lawyer. Uh, I think a lot of that is uh, missing from much of the policy discussion. But yeah, yes, I I certainly uh, am looking for various uh, opportunities. And as uh, things arise, I think uh, they will present themselves. And, uh, you know, we'll see where things stand in uh, the near to medium term future. Sounds great, Boris. Well, I look forward to, to following along uh, and to my listeners and viewers. Once again, I'm going to drop this in the show notes, but go ahead and follow Boris at B Rifkin uh, on Twitter at B Rifkin, R-Y-V-K-I-N. Uh, and, uh, and keep an eye on that feed as well for him to unveil his, his new opportunities coming, uh, coming down the pike soon. So Boris, once again, thanks so much, uh, to my listeners. If you have a question for Boris, just go ahead and reach out directly to him on, on Twitter, tag his handle on Twitter and ask him, uh, he's a fount of knowledge and, uh, and welcomes all the questions as he, uh, so graciously answered mine and, and agreed to come on. So thanks once again, Boris and to my listeners, God bless thanks, you. Thanks, Zach.